0: Everything's Sequel is brought to you by Slatus 50-50 and the Vegas
1: Beer Guys. The Everything Sequel podcast contains explicit language. You have been forewarned. Hello, one and all, and welcome to the Everything Sequel Podcast. This is still the Die Hard Edition. My name is Michael Schantz of the How Dare You Awards. With me is my much better half, Tom Stewart of Lonesome Whistle Productions. Say hello to the group, Tom. I tried to find more Nixon. (laughs) So those of you that have seen Leave Free or Die Hard... You know that Tom's talking about the movie montage created by our criminals, Timothy Oliphant, Thomas Gabriel. This is Live Free or Die Hard, a 2007 Len Weissman film. The 16th highest grossing film of 2007, Tom. Uh, Budget of 110 million, made 134 in the US, but 388 worldwide. Where it was called Die
0: Hard 4.0. Correct. So yeah. I'm assuming that that's the
1: that's the uh, the success is something to do with the change of title. There's a yeah, there's a trend like with all these sequels, they make bank overseas. Mm. They make more money overseas than they do here in the U.S. They love the diehards. I wonder whether it's just like yeah, stupid Americans blowing stuff up. That's right.
0: what, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what the. Um... Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know why this particular franchise gets uh, some. I guess there is something
1: universal about blowing stuff up. All countries love it. I think so. Yeah. I, Despite I, the U.S. <laughs> is the only one that mentions like fucking rockets and bombs in its national anthem. Yeah, you know, in, in the same <laughs> way
0: that the silent movies had this global appeal because there was no dialogue. It's like we're talking through the the, the language of uh, blowing shit up. <laughs> Right.
1: And boy, does this movie blow some shit up.
0: Oh, yes.
1: <laughs> so, for those of you that listened to our uh, introduction to the Die Hard movies, you know that we rank the movies, and Tom, he ranked the movies two, four, three, five. I ranked them four, three, two, five. But neither one of us. Um, I think did it with a lot of gusto, Tom. <laughs> we, we find <laughs> the only thing we're completely agreed on is that the fifth movie is last and it's razor thin on these other three movies. I'm, I'm even in talking with you, I'm already starting to change my mind. Yeah, likewise. I, I mean,
0: uh, I, I feel terrible about saying any bad things about these movies. I have like maybe one or two not very nice things to say about this movie. And, uh, you know, I don't
1: feel comfortable with with even that level of criticism. Right. So like the hard part for me was in my heart, like, you know, after talking about it, I feel like I even want to change. Like I want I kind of want to go four, two, three. We talked in the previous episode about how much I like that they took a big swing in three. Yeah. Talking about something as important as racism in this country as well.
0: But, well, no, but that's that's very that's very justified. Um, you know, my big uh, you can listen back, but my big um, problem with the film is the second half of the movie. Right, but it's 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 an illusion that you know that just because all the the most of the bad stuff is in that part of the movie, it makes it look like a worse movie, but it
1: isn't necessarily. Correct, and same with number two. Like start to finish, two is the most complete movie. Definitely. It, you know, and and that's what I like about it so much. It's just that it feels more retread. You know, we the like we talked about, the band is back together. They felt like they had to bring everybody back. Sometimes in weak ways, it doesn't really work. Mm-hmm. Um, and it felt like a retread of the first movie. I think w- the reason I listed this movie as my favorite of the sequels is I think it's the most successful in... Basically, from, not not from beginning to end, but from beginning to almost end.
0: Yes, I agree. I think I know exactly the scene you're talking about as well. Yeah.
1: So, but up until that point, I think this movie is uh, by far the best story, uh, the best, you know, it's the most interesting to me. It seems like they, we kind of talked in the previous episode, the one thing they do really move well in these in this series is they move with the times well. Absolutely. And this movie does that really
0: well. I mean, if uh, you know, the the past couple of sequels could not work uh, post 9-11 and post internet connectivity. Right. And at least this movie, maybe, you know, we'll talk about A Good Day to Die Hard, but certainly this movie cannot exist without... Internet ke- connectivity and uh, 9-11, yeah, you know, it, it, it's they, they come out of the gate swinging with uh, a cyber attack on American democracy.
1: Correct. Uh, it is, it's front <laughs> and center. <laughs> that, that, right? that, that,
0: that is not only linked, that is not only uh, is not only evocative of 9-11 is a direct historical result of everything that happened after 9-11. Um, right.
1: So this movie really isn't pulling its punches when it comes to modernization. And so, let me ask you this: Are you on the same page with me? Is, like in in what we're talking about, I feel like this movie has uh, the best justification for the villain. Uh sort
0: well, of in the I, sense, like I the villain has of... the
1: best story. You know, we talked about. Yeah. Three has a good one, but it's familiar. The idea of a family member who wants revenge. Mm. Two, we can barely figure out why <laughs> Colonel Stewart is doing what he's doing. This one is completely clear.
0: Yeah, the the, the naked Tai Chi just, just distracts us from whatever that guy's motivation is.
1: Right, right. But in this one, it's completely clear, totally motivated. And in that way, I think it's the best of the three or rather four sequels. Yeah, I don't. That's interesting
0: because I absolutely do. I am on the same page as you, but I don't know if I always felt that way about Gabriel. And uh, that that's directly linked to how I how my opinion of Timothy Oliphant's changed. Where well, I remember when I saw this in 2007, all I had from all I'd seen Oliphant do was Deadwood which is a, a phenomenal, as, as a Sheriff Bullock, which is a phenomenal performance. But right. at the time, I just thought he was this cheesecake actor that, um, for some reason, was really good at playing this uptight guy, but actually wasn't very talented. He just looked into this role, which was perfect for him. Oh, I see. And then I, when I saw Gabriel, I was like, oh, he's so, he's so awkward and so bland and... I remember at the time thinking, well, he's probably kind of my least favorite diehard villain. F- flash forward to, I don't know, I've seen this film about three <laughs> or four times since. Flash forward to today, I'm like, this kind of white male fragility is our real life villainy now. This man is Jared Kushner. He is Steve Munchin, He is all- that guy who uh, is trying to make the COVID vaccine and charges people for AIDS medication. It's that guy. And now I just think, what a breath of fresh air Timothy Oliphant is, and he knows exactly what he's doing
1: in playing this guy. That's how I felt when I originally saw him because I felt like he was getting the most out of what, and y- you know, you might speak to this, what feels like written on the page, not much there as a villain. Right, yeah. But I felt like. There was something underneath, and I, yes. I've always been such a big fan of Timothy Oliphant. I just I just love his work. Well, it was ju- it was just... I know you're a big fan of Justified as well.
0: It was Justified that made me realize, oh, this guy can do anything. Yeah, right. It's anything, just that I was just going to say. He, he has a particular talent for these kind of buttoned-down, uptight guys. Uh, I mean, in Justified, he's you know, sometimes the opposite of that. So it was, you know, and, and looking back, I'm like, oh yeah, it all makes sense now. Like he's, he, it's one of the many kind of characters in this movie that have actually grown in credibility. Uh-huh. It kind of, as a, as a as a 2020 movie, still looks pretty good. I mean, 13 years. Right. A lot of what it's talking about is still very much with us. And a lot of what seemed kind of, implausible at the time is now second nature to us.
1: Right. And I think that's one of the things I like about this movie, too, is that we are 13 years later and we could wait another decade. And I feel like when you watch it, it'll feel like it was made recently. Yes. Die Hard 2, even though it's made in 19 or rather released in 1990, it feels like an 80s movie. And they're (laughs) like marveling about technology like fax machines, you know, so it dates itself in that way, and Die Hard with a Vengeance, we kind of spoke to this, it feels more like a Tarantino world, yeah, 1990s kind of, you know, the, the Die Hard spin on a 1990s movie.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And this, and, you know, apart from the parkour, you wouldn't uh, necessarily know this was uh, 2007.
1: Correct. Right. <laughs> Uh, this is also the uh, first time that we see Bruce Willis as John McClane without hair.
0: Yeah, and I, I, I wasn't planning on getting this so early, but since, you know, I think the audience knows that we, that we love this movie, uh, it can take a little bit of flack. Do you This is a question for you, yeah. and this is a question that always plays on my mind when I watch this particular movie. Is this still John McClane? Or have we passed over into Bruce Willis' human walnut? Like, is there enough of John McClane still in him?
1: What do you think? I do. I think. Yeah. But I think it. I think it kind of toes the line. You know, I, right. I can see why you're asking the question, but I do feel like John McClane's still there. And the thing Mm. that I think they do really well in this movie um, that works to speak to that is they uh, call back to the original Die Hard the problems he's, you know, one of the reasons Die Hard 2 doesn't completely work for me is that his character doesn't grow at all. You know, at the end of Die Hard, he has to kind of confront his pigheadedness and his lack of kind of understanding about his wife and her career and that kind of thing. Mm so that they can come together. In Die Hard 2, they are together, so there's nowhere for him to go mm. with, in terms of his relationship. And the thing they do so great in this movie is they bring the daughter in. Oh, yeah, it's, it's,
0: it's an excellent move.
1: And so you have the recall of the name Gennaro as opposed to using the name McClane, and he's having the same exact problem he had with his wife except it's with his daughter. Yeah. And that's what humanizes him in this movie, and that's why he stays John McLean for me.
0: Yeah, and and I go I go both ways. I, I do I do remember thinking, you know, is there enough of the kind of post moonlighting mm-hmm. uh, Bruce Willis, which was so central? Like, it's it's getting harder to believe that this guy was cast as a romantic comedy lead in anything. Right. Yeah. It's like it's straining cred. You know, if you if you told someone who had just seen this movie that this guy was like you know Ted Danson for a few years they'd be like you're insane you you th- th- that's that couldn't be true right but it, you know I, I it's just a question i asked basically because i've got nothing bad to say about the movie and i and also because i think it keys into the way that this movie's trying to play both the sequel and the reboot card yeah i yeah i would agree with that that it's trying to be so cagey about what came before And that this being so cagey about you not having to know anything about what happened to before that it sometimes feels like it's a brand new character. Um, But what is also great about the film is in the the second half of the film, we get a couple of of different scenes where reading between the lines, we can see the the through line to the other sequels in the original.
1: Yeah, I was going to just bring that up. There are some and, you know, it's funny with sequels. They don't do this nearly enough and certainly not um, well. <laughs> you know, we talked when we did the Jaws series, we talked about how efficiently Jaws 3D refers to Jaws and Jaws 2. Yeah. You know, the idea of, of you know, remember that shark attack I told you about my, <laughs> that happened where I lived? That's why my brother lives in Colorado. So you have like one line that sums it all up. Yeah. And when John McClane meets Matt Farrell and they have this huge kind of awesome set piece of a shootout where you meet, the you know, the hamster bad guy and, you know, you got guys on fences and he's flipping them and, yep. I mean, just all kinds of fantastic, really fun stuff. Um, but right after that, there's this moment where Matt Farrell, who, of course, this is not, you know, this is brand new for his character. Yeah. And he's like, can you believe this happened? Have you ever done something like that before? And just really quietly, you know, McClane says, yeah, yeah, I've had <laughs> things happen like that before. And that's the kind of level it remains to the film, and it's a
0: really nice, it's a really nice tone for it to keep. And yeah. what I really liked was that uh, uh, there's a scene about I don't know about two thirds of the way through the movie, maybe earlier, where John McClane is kind of basically talking about you know it's his it's his I could have been a contender scene. It's his like you know I was for a brief period a big shot. And it's interesting how these sequels, one of the ways in which they, they are, like they do, they are kind of continuous, is that you sort of see the celebrity of John McClane kind of gradually erode through these sequels. Right, the
1: 15 minutes, uh, you know, the light bulb is dimming. Well, his yeah, like Die Hard 2, he, You know, everyone knows who John McClane is, right.
0: and and that you know what what him being there means. Die Hard and Avenge it with Die Hard three a... kind of talks about it's like yeah, you know, it's kind of fading a little that bit. That thing in L A. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that thing in exactly yeah, and then this one he's, he just says nothing, you get nothing. Right, and I just think that's. Um, it's like I don't know if they're paying attention to these things or it's a happy accident, but when you're watching them together, like we are, it definitely seems like there's a there's a kind of um, there's an underlying narrative of, of basically no one cares about John McClane anymore, right, including his own wife, which is probably well, you know what? Also, the screenwriters are thinking it's like, why are we bringing him back after 13 years?
1: Like, what's his relevance? What what what? can he do for us right and the answer to that to me seems to be like in his own line he says you know somebody's got to do it yeah <laughs> i'm the guy who's here so i have to do it so yeah. we're just yeah. getting started ladies and gentlemen we're talking about <laughs> dot di- or live free or die hard it's hard to get these sequel names correct <laughs> by the time you get to the end isn't it Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, This is, uh, we're starting to get very lengthy titles. Right. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break, and we will be back in just a moment. Look, people, we're living in strange times. We know that, don't we? Of course we do. People don't even know what to do with themselves. We're getting stir-crazy. Well, get outside and get yourself some great food, I say. You need to go to Slater's fifty-fifty 50 in Point Loma's Liberty Station. It's time to treat yourself to booze, to beer, to burgers, and more. They have their full menu, people. Their full menu, I say. How many restaurants do you know that are doing that? Most places are doing a quarter of their menu, probably. Some might be doing a half. Maybe a few have got three quarters of a menu. But Slater's 50-50 has their full menu including their signature 50 50 patty it's half ground beef it's half ground bacon it's 100 percent delicious what more could you possibly ask worried about social distancing well it is in place people tables are separated and the staff will always be seen wearing masks you're out of excuses get off your keister and come on down to liberty station's own slater's 50 50 indoor dining available Outdoor dining available. Bring the family. Bring your dog. Come enjoy the normal again. Good day to you. I said good day. And we're back. We're here talking about 2007's Live Free or Die Hard. Uh, We were just talking about, you know, how John McClane is fitting into the 2007 world, how Bruce Willis is fitting as an actor. Uh, We seem to both agree that there's enough John McClane there. Let me ask you this. Yeah. I feel like this movie. So when when I heard this movie was coming out, I actually was not excited. Yeah, I, I agreed. So, you know, it had been six years. Um, I heard it was going to be PG-13. There was just a lot of things where I thought, oh, they're going to shit the bed on this movie. And I, like, walking out of it, I was so delighted at what I saw. The PG-13 thing didn't bother me at all.
0: Right.
1: You know, I thought they worked around it well. I mean, I still think it's, you know, f- for for 98% of this movie, I think it's the most su- uh, successful sequel. Mm-hmm. Um, what were your feelings about when it when you first heard it was coming out and that kind of thing. Yeah,
0: I think I had the same reaction of just you know, because uh, conservatively John McClane is in his fifties. Uh huh. Do I want to see a do I want to see an action movie? Well, I guess I watch Bond movies, so what's the difference? Uh,
1: but, uh, <laughs> Roger Moore was getting a little bit towards the uh, toe tag at the end of that series. Yeah, exactly.
0: Um but uh, the, I remember the circumstances of seeing it could not be more perfect. I um, I was on a double date, and we got to the movie got to the movie theater and did something that I have only seen in in sitcoms like The King of Queens happen, Right. where uh, there were, I remember there was a new Harry Potter out. And there was Die Hard 4.0, live free or die hard to, to, uh, the American audiences. And the two guys decided to go to see Die Hard. And the two ladies went to see Harry Potter. (laughs) Oh, that's fantastic. And, uh, I, 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 mean that the formula, that was the perfect viewing situation for this. And we just, we just loved it. And, um, Interestingly, speaking of sequels, we tried to kind of recreate this formula with Crystal Skull, and <laughs> it with very different results. That, that, <laughs> no. that way of watching it, you know, like two two guys who wanted a big gut so you know action movie, actually hurt us when it got to Crystal Skull. You you couldn't recreate the magic. We couldn't recreate the magic, but um, did you have the same date? I had, but it was the same. It was definitely the, the same, same disparity guy? that you had of like expectation versus reality. And I just remember, and I, I think this is kind of key for any diehard. I remember laughing a lot. I remember thinking so many things were successful, like scene by scene. Yeah, and and in and whatever reservations I had in two thousand and seven about it. Uh, like 99% of them has been resolved in watching it a few times since. I've changed my mind on pretty much everything I didn't like about it the first time.
1: Okay. What were those initial reactions? What did you initially not like? Two words, Kevin Smith. Okay. (laughs) right. Right. I remember at the time
0: thinking, this didn't feel right. This didn't feel like it should be in there. This is an egregious cameo that's out of universe. See, I
1: remember thinking that's how I should feel. Yeah, but I love him. Well, that's what I feel about it now, and that's yeah. one of
0: the, that's one of the instances where the thing, the film, has proved me wrong over the years. Because that uh, that um, trope of the hacker who lives in his mother's basement, who's the only person who can right. hack into these very important places, is like commonplace now. And there right, right. too many of them before that. You know, they're all, all those kind of characters are some variation of Kevin Smith's Warlock. Right. Um, and, you know, that's, they're kind of signaling a lot of things that they're vindicated in. That, you know, that they're introducing this icon of nerd culture and saying, guys, this is going to be movies from now on. All that stuff that's up on his wall, we're going to reboot the shit out of that. Yeah, you're going to be seeing a lot of it. Yeah. yeah. These kind of people are going to be running the movie industry in the next few years. You know, like you can see all
1: that the the the, the nucleus of all that
0: well, right there. What's,
1: what's fascinating to me about Kevin Smith being in this movie is that like you said, you know, the you think that it's that it's just Kevin Smith, right? Like Yeah and and it has that feel and yet when I, when i watch it now yes it's kevin smith but i feel the character oh yeah it feels you know he's completely playing the character to me and just because the character's very much like him yes. like it doesn't bother me at all
0: no no it's it's definitely it doesn't bother me at all now i think i think it it was it was timely then, and it could have dated, but everything that has happened since just reaffirms that that this is the kind of character that, you know, if you're going to do a cyber thriller, this is one of the kinds of characters you have. And that's what this essentially is. Uh-huh. And I think, so I think it's actually, it's actually brilliant.
1: I think it's actually, I, I, I look forward to seeing him. It's like just the right amount of comedy. And I, I remember in my notes, I have a thing where uh, I think he was trying to ham up the comedy when they first started shooting it. Yeah. And Bruce Willis actually encouraged him to, like, take it down a notch. <laughs> and to me, they clearly, like, found, you know, the Goldilocks bowl for his humor and where he was going. I just I love the moment where he says, oh, you a big fan of the Fet? <laughs> Uh It's it, it's great. And um now I'm i kind of more of a Star Wars fan myself. I mean I
0: just love it. I yeah I I think I think it's a really and you know one of the I was just I was also struck again. This is like watching it back in 2020. I did wonder whether Kevin Smith really had a heart attack and lost all that weight, or he just saw a rerun of this where everyone is calling him fat for 20 minutes. Right. And he just it just shamed him into losing all that weight. <laughs> Because I cannot believe how many times people comment on, I was like, "He's really not that big, okay? We're not talking about." They're not nice, you know. Yeah, it's it's um, it's kind of fascinating how uh, you know, and then and, and the stuff that's on his wall: Planet of the Apes, Star Wars, has all since become like major reboot properties. And I I sort of wondered, you know, whether they were sort of like trying to, in the same way, Die Hard Two. We talked about how they are always talking about the fact that they're a sequel. Um, uh-huh. but they also feel now the justification. They reference to it a lot. Talk about it's like, hey, we're you know we're a franchise now. We're one of these big, you know, we're one of these big hitters now. We're a Planet of the Apes. We're yeah. a, we're a Star Well, and Wars. that's
1: one of the things that makes the first three sequels two, three, four so hard to rank, because it's not great that Die Hard two is so self aware of it being a sequel, so it feels less honest. But like from beginning to end. You know, for what it is, it's so successful in what it does exactly what it wants to do. But three and four are successful in the way that we were referring to earlier about this sort of lived life, the actual lived life of John McClane, how his celebrity is waning. You know,
0: for someone for someone who had real issues with how this how the previous movie wrapped up, I think straight straight out of the gate, you know, that they go in exactly the direction I wanted them to go where they basically decide that Holly and John never got back together. Yeah, their relationship is over, right? And I'm sure, you know, uh, Buddy Bedelia's availability is, is probably still the major factor behind that. But nonetheless, I'm, I'm you know, absolutely of like, great. You know, now we're, we're like, you know, we're in a dysfunctional family and we're focusing on um, one of the kids grown up. And, you know, I, I remember thinking... I don't know if I remember thinking this the first time I saw it, but I remember thinking if she was just in that early part of the movie, it would be a real waste. So the fact that right. they make her part of the story later on is beautiful. Another great I, choice. I yeah, great I choice. agree.
1: So... Um, oh,
0: go ahead. And, you know, she, she plays it really well. And I, th- I think we'll talk about this more when we talk about A Good Day to Die Hard. But it makes me realize that what value this uh this franchise puts on the chemistry being right between the not just the dub central double act but also the central trio yeah. if you don't get that right basically you don't have anything correct in in a die and hard. that's kind of plainly I mean, evident Lucy, in our next movie Matt and uh, John when it's actually the rep, the the repartee improves when they're all when it's the three yeah. of them which you really don't i remember uh, laughing in surprise in the theater the first, when when they have like a, a triple, you know, it's like she starts talking like John McClane and he says, you know, I don't, I says, I've heard that, but I don't expect it from people with
1: hair. Right. And I'm like, this movie's getting better when you throw in the daughter. Yeah, exactly. I love it. And so we haven't talked much about Justin Long and his character, Matt Farrell. Do you like that addition? I remember in the last episode you spoke to, as far as, uh, kind of the john mcclain partner you felt like this yeah. was the most successful is that right definitely yeah i think um
0: because what they, they they've taken the basic idea as like of like a split of a split in the partnership between brain and Brawn. correct they've yeah. taken that which has carried the last two diehards at least um but they've added in that he's that that uh that he's tech-minded and that he's young, which adds this kind of intergenerational element to Conflict, it. some of yeah. the great joys of the movies are their kind of mutual misunderstandings. Of uh, there's a great scene where they're driving to Washington, yeah. and they're talking about you know he's talking he's trying to. Trying to talk to him about Credence, which is on the radio. And he's and, and Matt's describing it as classic rock and he doesn't understand that it's classic. And then they talk about the news and how the younger generation thinks the news is fake, and he just he relies on it for information. And like even in that short scene, they've kind of like they've completely justified moving to a like a, a younger character um who uh who is kind of reminiscent of these past uh, past kind of partners that John McClane's had, but it, it adds a totally different dimension to yeah, it. Yeah,
1: I, I I think it's really successful how they're paired off, and because he's you know because he's the computer geek and because he's young, you you automatically have kind of conflict, and yeah. I love these small moments because there's a moment after they they're at Freddy's where. He even says, you know, you should cut bait and run like you should just go. And he gets in the car and there's that moment where he says, because you're that guy. So, you know, it's funny Mm -hmm. that um, what John McClane as a character seems to value, you know, this guy's becoming. Yeah. So he's you know, it's it's like he's stepping a toe into the brawn while still using (laughs) his brains. Completely, yeah, and and um, you know that the
0: it's interesting that they've never kind of played the cowardice card with the partner before, right? Like you, because Zeus was, and uh, you know this was a political choice as well. He was right there with McLean from the beginning. You know, he grabs his gun and points it at the at the guys who are trying to hurt McClane, right. who were, her like you know his people, like he's people in it from, from his the, neighborhood, from right? And people like you know Barnes. Um, he's obviously like he's out of his depth in the in the action but he's not scared right. but Matt is you know he's scared and hungry and those are two things that we haven't addressed in this franchise before
1: yeah and let me ask you this um, sort of moving on there are little things throughout the series um, I don't know if they are actually scripted or at least the first one if it's scripted or if it's just ju- like what Bruce Willis is doing yeah but one thing I've always loved about John McClane is how much he talks to himself.
0: Absolutely. And there's just the right amount of that here. And it comes in just to just at that moment where you're like, is this still John McClane? Right. And then he talks to himself in a car and you're like, yeah, yeah. It's still
1: Yeah, it's yeah. Not, yeah. The, I mean, those little moments um, are just fantastic to me. And this this is a little thing it because, you know, you don't see this in a lot of action movies. Uh, usually the 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 guns are filled with endless bullets. Yes. And the one thing they do in in this series throughout is he runs out of bullets. Yeah. And whenever he has to reload his gun, there's genuine. You have the mix of genuine panic. I'm about to die. I need to hurry, but being steady enough to like get it done. And I love that about his performance. I, I you know it's it, to me it speaks to. Um, Actually, being a police officer, it makes me believe him. A
0: hundred percent, yeah. And uh, they, they also—it's very there's something about the fir- at least the first half of the movie that feels very kind of homemade. You know, is using a a fire extinguisher to to like defend themselves rather than right. shooting someone, and or shooting a fire extinguisher to to kill someone. And I guess that's that's sort of why. Uh, I mean, I don't know how you feel about that. I can take an educated guess. But when we get to the fighter jet sequence... Well,
1: hang on. Let's wait
0: for a okay, second. Okay,
1: okay, okay. That's a big That's a big thing to talk about. What I was going to say, yeah. though, just, just in reference to what you're saying, I think it speaks to the character's intelligence. Now, if you have to pause it and ha- be watching it at home to find this out, but there's the moment where Gabriel kind of brings up McClane's police file and if you pause it you see moments of like his uh sergeant's test his detective test his lieutenant's test mm-hmm. and he's always you know in the 92 94 93 percentile Interesting. and so it speaks to his intelligence now what you're talking about is more uh, the big set pieces so well the,
0: I'm gonna... uh, so on that the when it's a it's a really important point in the movie when Gabriel pulls up his hacks into his file and this is the moment in the movie where you assume they're going to talk about Nagasaki, Dallas, right. New York. They make no mention of that. They, they, they talk about family stuff, which is, you know, canon, but it's fairly superficial. And then later on in the movie, Gabriel makes a comment where he says, you're always in the wrong in the place rock, yeah. at the wrong time. So the choice that the movie's making, as I understand it, I mean, it could be viewed differently, is that whatever he's found out about John McClain does include
1: this. He does well, what's know, interesting but is, the filmmakers don't want to uh, yeah. talk about it. Gabriel doesn't speak to it, but on that same shot that I was talking about, it talks about the medals he earns for those moments, for Nag- the, you yeah. know, the Nakatomi so, so
0: he. But it's just amazing to me that he wouldn't bring that up Like he wouldn't be like, oh, shit, we're dealing with the guy who was involved in these three major terrorists who thwarted these three major terrorist acts. Okay, Um, we should probably reconsider our strategy. But then I love that they and this is, you know, it's trying to play both sides where it's like the audience, if they haven't seen the previous sequels from 20 years ago or whatever, they're not going to they're not going to be invested in it in the same way that people coming back to it are that's true but you need that line at the end you know always in the wrong place at the wrong time I mean it's like oh so we know Gabriel knows that he's dealing with that that he knows who he's dealing with
1: yeah 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 exactly well so alright we're gonna take a quick break and then we're gonna finish up you know live free or die hard you'll notice listeners the quibbles we're talking about they're minor we love this movie tell us what you think Uh, stay tuned we'll be right back
0: They're on Facebook, they're on Instagram. They'll try new beers, they'll tell you about beers. Think of them as your beer-sherfers, guiding you up a foamy-headed mountain to reach the peak of your punt. God, I need a beer.
1: And we're back. We're here talking about Live Free or Die Hard, We're coming to the end, Tom. Let's talk about the end of this movie, or just in general, because you've referenced it a couple of times. You know, the one thing that clearly defines this movie as a 2000s movie to me is it's filled with set pieces. Yes. And so we're just, we seem to try to be getting from set piece to set piece to set piece. But the one thing that's great about this movie is the set pieces are awesome. And in between, what's in between is always good. So when you're going from the first shootout to the tunnel shootout or, you know, killing a helicopter with a car to, you know... He he ran out of bullets, Mike. He ran out of bullets. What else could you do? (laughs) So let me ask you, we get to the final set piece, which to me is like the moment this movie goes to 11 in the best way. I don't know if it is in so the best way. So you referenced it before. Not, I
0: don't I don't enjoy it as you as you as much as you might expect. The Fighter Jet? Yeah, I yeah, this is actually something that has bothered me more rewatching it than it did at the time. I think again the original context is two guys separated from their girlfriends not having to watch a Harry Potter movie you're gonna be excited about that fighter jet right well so but 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 now to give you a kind of glimpse and i just and this is partly a product of like watching two and three before this you know to me now it just seems totally about upping the ante what haven't we done and i think sequels get into a very bad Uh, they go down a very bad road when they start to think like that. And I think this is an example of that where it's just about, okay, so in Die Hard 2, he was on the wing, but the plane never left the ground. So let's do the plane plane
1: in the air, but him jumping to the ground. See, so I think you're completely right about that. Like, to me, it's absolutely absurd what happens in this sequence. And yet, through the direction... That, you know, that Len Weisman gives, it's completely believable to me. Okay. <laughs> no, like, I mean, I... by the end of it, I realized that I've been holding my breath. Uh-huh. You know, when he's jumping off that airplane in between two slabs of freeway concrete <laughs> with the explosion going behind him, every single time I'm going, fuck yeah <laughs> but you, you know i think it and as well i think
0: the film is a victim of its own success here it's like i understand that you want to do these these overblown big things but the film is so good at just getting away with full like being a little bit short of like like the fire extinguisher is 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 ridiculous but there's this kind of homemade improvisatory quality about
1: it right but I think there are choices in that, too. Like, the, I think the reason it works is because it's not an explosion when he hits the fire extinguisher with fire. It's just the gas releasing, and there's enough gas to push the guy out the window. It's like, they make it slightly implausible, but, like, just possible enough to make you believe this it. This
0: is—I mean, there's a famous scene from The Office, um, uh, the the American office, with where Michael Scott— moonlighting in a call center is giving his review of live free or die hard and he's basically saying that you know (laughs) it's it started off with this you know this guy that you could believe in and now he's jumping off the wings of jets and using a helicopter um you know as a weapon um and uh the fighter jet sequence is the only moment where i could give credence uh, credence excuse the pun <laughs> give credence to that argument that we've come too far in the way of you know we've lost the we've lost the heart and soul of you know he is just like a digital figure in a big cartoon at that point okay like I, I, that's so, the yeah. only moment i feel like that in the whole film the rest of it i'm like you just you know you 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 go girl uh, See, I feel this, more this like moment, that I'm like, the no, elevator please don't, sequence. Please don't jump off that wing. At least stay on the wing and let it land or something that, that they did in Die Hard 2 because they were like, oh, no one's going to believe he could jump
1: on it jump from the air to the ground. Oh, it's completely plausible to me that he can go between those slabs of concrete. He's just sliding, Tom. He's just sliding. He's just sliding. It's
0: just a, I, it's just I a mean, big you know, he, uh, he is in his 50s. He's yeah, pushing it's he's pushing less believable. And again, you see, but that's the thing. It's like what is the what is the world of this franchise? Like, how far does it go into that James Bond territory of you know uh conservative
1: sci-fi <laughs> right. Well, see, and I, I I keep saying like the the place where I feel the most like that is actually the elevator sequence. Yeah. Now, not the elevator sequence itself, because, like, you have this great fight. By, by the way, Maggie Q, we haven't mentioned Maggie Q, great villain in this movie. Yeah,
0: yeah. And the, she's the, the beaten the, the tar out of diversity continues, but they're kind of, like, mixing it up with uh, Antipodean and Southeast Asian uh americans as well it's great to see
1: and she's just fantastic as a baddie in this movie she's beaten the snot out of john mcclain you have this interesting moment where he decides you know what i don't care that this is a woman and just starts throwing (laughs) her through glass you know but then she beats the snot out of him and he falls down three flights of stairs or something like that anyway he gets to a car and rams the whole thing through the building and when he hits her it's not like how somebody gets hit by a car and she's flown. It's more she just sticks to the windshield. And then the next thing you know, he decides to ram it into an elevator shaft. Pretty unsafe. Yeah. So all of that felt kind of dumb to me. But once they get in the elevator shaft, then you have another great set piece. So and, you know, some I forgive it. They
0: they have a lot of great uh, one liners to offset everything absurd that they do which is what this franchise is great at and you know spoiler alert what the next movie is not good at
1: right <laughs> well so now we've got just a couple of minutes left we come to the place do you feel as i do cuz the only thing that lacks for me in this movie is like the last 5 minutes
0: Oh no, I it was It feels I, I w- like an
1: unsatisfying end.
0: Oh no, 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 I disagree. I completely disagree. I love the I I the fighter jet stands out to me as like uh it's it's a you know jump the shark or if, to use to use our terminology skiing off the skyscraper moment for me. Uh-huh. But after that, I love that uh, I I love that kind of low-key um uh, you know, there's the suggestion of a romance between Matt and, uh, and Lucy. No, yeah, I like all of that. He, and then he says, find yourself a man. Not that one.
1: And it's great. It's like, right. oh, great, we're not going down that road. Perfect. No, all of that is great. And I, I'm even misspeaking a little bit because it's not that I don't like what's there. It's that in comparison to the other, you know, the original and the other two sequels, it just feels like there's not a lot of bang for your buck. It's not kind of got that triumphalist feeling that Die Hard Two definitely right. had. Right, that's that's what feels like it's missing. But everything that is there, I do like. It just doesn't feel triumphant. I think you hit the nail on the head. I but I kind of I I
0: like I like that choice. I I think it's okay. Again, it's like I think if Three had have just had like a nice like uh had ended at that point before they go to Canada where they're kind of uh defeated and dejected yeah I feel like that's like they're doing that with the tone I mean they win but it's like um you know family is the thing
1: um right that... it's just a little messy for me in the sense of you know he's got the gun pointed into a wound in McLean's right shoulder he he's standing right behind him. He pulls the trigger and yet somehow Gabriel is shot right in the heart on the left side of his body. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's just like, there's little things that, and again, I'm quibbling. Um, but within the scene, there's lots of fun stuff. I think this is the moment where, where Timothy Oliphant is, is, Like, at his most fun. Definitely. His henchman gets shot in the foot, and he's like, Jesus! He's got this great line in mock incredulity at his henchman
0: that's really, really good.
1: Oh, it's so good. He shoots at Matt, um, you know, because he wants him to try to get the, you know, revert the the computer nonsense he's done. And all of those moments are great. And like you said earlier, you're the wrong guy in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah. And all of that's really good, but... um, I don't know. I guess I was. I just want a little more. Hmm. Uh,
0: well, that d- I think it's good that it left you wanting more because when when the third film when Die Hard with a Vengeance felt that way, they gave you Garde Nord. Right.
1: <laughs> 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 well, I think we've come to the end. We know that this is my favorite. Of, of the uh, four sequels this is your second yeah. favorite uh, ladies and gentlemen you know find us we're on uh, Facebook we are on Twitter we are on the Instagram uh, tell us what you think of live free or die hard you can email us too at uh, everything sequel podcast uh, at gmail we want to know what you think so give us, a, give us a shout out Tom anything else to say before we go no, it's 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 a good day
0: to talk about. It's a good day to die hard. It's not called it's a good day to die hard. is it? It's called a good day to die.
1: Right. A good day to die hard. That's coming up next. We're going to be completing this series. Stay tuned. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening.